It's a pleasure to be with you folks this morning. This is a church that clearly takes worship very seriously. You never let any stray thoughts enter into your minds. Stray thoughts such as, how tall is that guy anyways? How's the weather up there? Where does he buy his clothes? What does his wife look like? You never let those enter your mind. So let me address those right away. I'm six foot ten. I'm of Dutch descent, the Dutch, the tallest nation in the world. I married a woman who was five foot five, hoping that she would dilute the gene pool. It is not working. <laughs> I have three children. They're all beautiful inside and out, but they're all gargantuan. I do bring you greetings from Covenant College, where I'm a professor, and also from the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College. We are a, an outward-looking part of the college that seeks to equip churches and missionaries, both in the United States and around the world, to walk amongst people who are poor in ways that can restore them to all that God has designed them to be. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. We're going, to, we're, going to look, we're going to look at a particular text, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. You might want to turn to that, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. We also have it on the screen for you. The passage that we are about to read describes Paul and Barnabas, who are really the very first missionaries who are seeking to pursue the Great Commission in the town of Lystra, which is in Gentile territory, in essence, we're getting to see the very first missionaries bringing the gospel to an unreached people group. So let's turn to the Word of God. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had, never, he had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. They rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. He went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. 
The Bible tells us that when your word goes forth, it will not return void, but it will accomplish its mission. We pray today that your word would go forth despite the vessel through who it's coming and that it would accomplish its mission. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our, in our hearts today, that you would transform us more and more into the image of Christ and that the word would bear fruit today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to ask you uh, two questions. I really want you to pause and really even write down your answer to these two questions. I'm a professor. Everything's about tests. We're going to start with the test. Question number one, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus come to earth? What's your answer to that question? If you don't have a pen and paper, at least lodge an answer in your brain. Why did Jesus come? come to earth. The second question I have for you is this. What is the gospel? These are easy ones. What is the gospel? Write down your answer to that or perhaps at least lodge it in your brain. What is the gospel? As we think about advancing the Great Commission in the 21st century, it is impossible to separate global missions from the issue of global poverty. You see, the center of Christianity has shifted from the West to the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Parts of the world that are typically very poor. And within those those regions, within those continents... The church is growing most rapidly amongst the poorest people in those settings. Historian Philip Jenkins has noted the following, that the typical Christian in the world in the 21st century is not a business person attending a church in an American suburb, but rather a poor woman in a slum in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or a poor woman in a village in rural Nigeria. And a similar picture emerges when we think of unreached people groups, most of which reside in the 1040 window. More than 80% of the poorest of the poor in the world live in the 1040 window. It has been stated that the poor are the lost, and the lost are the poor. Now, coexisting with those people are us in the room today. We are the richest people ever to walk the face of planet Earth. How should the church of Jesus Christ pursue the Great Commission in the context of such enormous disparities in our wealth? Although we can't get a comprehensive answer to this question from today's passage, I believe that looking at this passage in light of all of Scripture provides some helpful guidelines for us as we explore this question. So Paul and Barnabas are heading out to an unreached people group, and the first thing that happens is is that they encounter a man who had been crippled from birth. Now commentators are agreed that given the fact that this man had been crippled from birth, he was most likely a beggar, somebody who stood on the side of the road with his hands outstretched asking for people to put food into his hands. Now, what do the first missionaries do when they encounter the poor? Note that they address 
the man's physical needs. They, they, they restore him to health. They restore him so that he can walk. Restoring him to being a person who'd be able to once again work. Now, why do they do this? Why do they address the man's physical needs? Isn't the task of the church to preach and teach the gospel? Doesn't meeting physical needs distract the church from its task of advancing the Great Commission? I would submit to you that the correct answer to both of those questions is no. But to see why, we have to understand the answers to the first two questions I asked you. Why did Jesus come to earth, and what is the gospel? And in order to understand the answers to those two questions, I want to back up. I'm a Presbyterian, so I want to back up all the way to the beginning, to creation. You know this. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he puts human beings in charge of his creation. He creates us to be image bearers. Now, an image bearer is a mirror. We reflect our creator onto the creation as mirrors. And because our creator creates, because he works, we reflect his image when we create through our work. Work is good. Human beings are wired for work. We're wired to work and to be able to support ourselves and to share with others through the fruits of that work. But then the fall happens. And one of the very first things we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that the ground is cursed. Adam is told that thorns will infest the ground, that his work will be toilsome. Eve is told to be pains in childbearing. Because of the fall, work doesn't work correctly anymore. And of course, this is one of the primary causes of poverty, a lack of work or a lack of fruitful work. But right there in the garden, God promises to send a Savior. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we learn more and more of what that Savior will look like. Eve is told that the Savior will crush the serpent's head. Adam is, Abraham is told that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then we get to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah tells us more and more about what the Savior will look like. In Isaiah chapter 9 Verses 6 through 7, we are told that the Savior will be a king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, and of peace there shall be no end. Note that this kingdom will increase without end, reigning over the entire cosmos. And this kingdom will bring peace. The word for peace in Hebrew is actually shalom. It means more than just the absence of war. It means completeness, health, prosperity, comprehensive happiness. In short, it means that he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. In particular, in this king's kingdom, the poor would be restored. 
Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, we read about this. In a prophecy about the nature of that coming king and his kingdom, we read this. The Spirit, this is talking, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That last phrase is referring to the year of Jubilee, the year when debts would be canceled, when land would be returned to the original landowners so that the poor would be restored to people who can live beside us in the land. Now you've got to transport yourself 700 years forward. We're covering all redemptive history, and I've got a clock up here that's driving me crazy. We've got to go fast. <laughs> Move forward 700 years. Jesus has just been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, and he goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath. He goes to a synagogue in Nazareth, the obscure town where he was raised. Week in and week out, the Jews had gathered in this synagogue, chafing under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They knew that there was a promised king who was coming. They knew that there was a kingdom coming that would bring the shalom that we just talked about, a kingdom that would throw out the Romans. But week in and week out, week in and week out, no king. 700 years had gone by since Isaiah's prophecy. Hope was probably in short supply. But Jesus, the son of a carpenter, stands up in that synagogue, and he's handed a scroll from the book of Isaiah. And unrolling it, he turns to one of the messianic passages, one of the passages that talks about the coming king and his kingdom. He turns to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, the passage that we just read. <clears throat> and he opens up the scroll and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the passage that we just read. And look at the very last phrase in that passage. He says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, I am that promised king, and I am ushering in that kingdom. And yes, that kingdom is not yet, but it's also today. And that today was 2,000 years ago. When does the kingdom begin? Not in the future. It began 2,000 years ago. That's the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus' message was that the kingdom was at hand. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus' message was his kingdom. Why did Jesus come to earth? If you are like most evangelical Christians in the United States, your answer was something like this. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. 
Does that sound different to you? If you're like most evangelical Christians in the United States, you said, what is the gospel? You said, well, by, re by putting my faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him, my soul can go to heaven someday when I die. And some of you are getting really nervous. You're going, those are my answers. Those are good answers. There's truth in those answers. The Bible teaches those things. Hallelujah. My sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It's great news. But it's only part of the story. You see, Jesus' message was his kingdom, which is bringing healing as far as the curse is found. And what I want to submit to you today is that if we focus in narrowly, narrowly on the answer that Jesus came to die to save me from my sins so that my soul can go to heaven when I die, we can't even understand the passage that we read this morning from Acts. You see, that partial message, folks, is dangerous. I'm a pastor's kid. Presbyterian pastor's kid. Orthodox Presbyterian pastor's kid. When it comes to Presbyterian righteousness, I've got it all. <laughs> we are the Hasidic Jews of Presbyterianism. What this meant was that every time the church doors were open, I was expected to be there. My mother would say to me, don't you want to set a good example for your peers? Believing that the salvation of my entire generation rested on my shoulders, I was in church every Sunday. My therapist says, another 30 years, I might get over it. Now, there were many, many forms of torture in all of this, but there was the lowest rung in all of this experience. At the age of 11 years old, I had to sing in the junior choir, wearing what appeared to me to be a dress. <laughs> if that wasn't bad enough, they decided to crank up the torture level. My older sister was the choir director. The only thing that made it worse was that I was being told that the good news was that one day my soul would go to heaven so I could fly around like Casper the Friendly Ghost, playing a harp and singing in the junior choir for all eternity. My image of the good news was floating around in, 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 in outer space like a ghost and singing in the junior choir for all eternity. That was not a compelling story to me. I didn't want to go to hell, but quite frankly, this only sounded marginally better to me. <laughs> it was not a compelling story. And I would submit to you it's not a compelling story to malnourish children who are picking up garbage in garbage dumps in Manila. It's not a compelling story to lepers in India whose limbs are literally falling off. It's not a compelling story to little girls being sold into brothels in Bangkok, Thailand. 
We have a better story to tell, the story of the gospel, which is by definition the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords right now, that is using all power in heaven and earth to bring healing as far as the curse is found, both to our bodies and to our souls, and that we are heading towards a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth that is fully embodied and that began 2,000 years ago. It's a more compelling story. And this story provides real hope in this life and the next for the leper, for the orphan, and for the little girls being sold into brothels, and for you and for me. We need to rethink the story. And we need to rethink how we're communicating that story. You see, Jesus preached the kingdom, but he also showed the kingdom. Think how crazy it would have been if Jesus had walked around with his hands in his pockets and said, yes, I'm king of kings and lord of lords. All power in heaven and earth has been granted unto me. I could heal your blindness, but I'm not going to really bother yet. And he puts his hands back in his pockets and doesn't do anything. Or when he sees the leper, he says, I have pow all power in heaven and earth. I'm king of kings and lord of lords. I'm coming to make all things new. I could heal, heal your leprosy, but I'm not going to really bother today. Just trust me. He puts his hands in his pockets. Nobody would have believed him. Nobody would have believed him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ's message was authenticated through the words and the deeds and the signs. Jesus declared his kingdom verbally but he showed it. Now notice that Jesus didn't just show off. You see, if I were Jesus, I would have done, I would, you know, oh, 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 this is coming off now. If I were Jesus, what I would have done is I would have showed off. I would have said, here, watch this. See this person here? They're going to have two heads in a second. <laughs> see that arm? How would you like to see it attached to their back? I would have moved it over there. Folks, Jesus never did that. All of his miracles were restorative. He was always moving people towards restoration of the way that they are supposed to be. Jesus' kingdom is bringing healing as far as the curse is found. And what Jesus does is he communicates that and then he shows it and he says to people, I want to give you a sneak preview of what the kingdom will look like when it comes in its fullness. Those of you who are under the age of 35, he gave a trailer of the coming attractions. And Jesus continues his message through his church. Look what he does in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. As Jesus sends out his followers, look at how he sends them out. He sends them out as he was sent. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sends them out to preach the kingdom and to show the kingdom. And this is why Paul and Barnabas in our passage are healing the crippled man. They're fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ committed to them, to preach the kingdom and to show the kingdom. So when they encounter the crippled man, it would be very natural for them. In fact, it would be 
bizarre to them if they did not help restore the man to all that he was created to be because the kingdom is about restoration. But the deeds were not enough. Communicating the gospel requires us to use words as well as deeds. Indeed, in this passage in Acts, we see words ministering to three people. First, the words ministered to the crippled man, to the beggar. He was listening to the preaching, and as a result of listening to the preaching, he had come to faith. Faith which was necessary for him to experience the full healing of his body and soul that the kingdom brings. Indeed, we know from elsewhere in the scripture that words are necessary for saving faith. Romans 10, chapter 17 says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Yes, the kingdom is bringing healing as far as the curse is found, but it is only those who put their trust in the king who receive the full benefits of that kingdom. You don't get the kingdom without submitting to the king. There's a famous quote that's been attributed to Francis of Assisi. Nobody knows if he actually said it, but the quote goes like this. Preach the gospel. Use words if you must. It's cute. And it's awful. Because we always must. We must always verbally communicate the gospel. Secondly, the words minister to the people who are watching. You see, without narrating the deeds, people will interpret the deeds through their own worldview, through their own set of glasses, their own presuppositions about how the world works. And did we see this in the passage today? The, the people there thought that Paul was Barnabas and that Zeus was Hermes. Now, why would they think that? You see, in that region, there was a, a cultural folklore that said that the gods had once come down to that region in human form. And because the people had not been hospitable to the gods, the gods punished them by wiping out all of their houses. And so they think they're being given a second chance. And so they're frantic. They want to make sure that they're hospitable. This is why the priest, you can see him running in, i got to do my job this time so that we don't mess up again. We've got to show hospitality to these gods lest we be wiped out again. Now notice what Paul and Barnabas do. They are frantic. They tear their clothes. They're profoundly disturbed about this misinterpretation of their deeds. They narrate the miracle but they also narrate the normal functioning of the universe. They say it's God who creates the heavens, the earth, and the sea. It is God who sends you rain. It is God who makes the crops grow. It is God who gives you food. It is God who gives you joy. In essence, Paul and Barnabas are trying to replace a pagan worldview with a kingdom worldview that sees God Almighty as the King of kings and Lord of lords because that's the message. Thirdly, the words minister to Paul and Barnabas, the miracle workers themselves. You see, we are always tempted to think that we are the solution. 
We are always tempted to think that we are the answer. We need to remind ourselves that we are not the solution, that the power comes from God Almighty. You see, shortly before this incident in Acts, King Herod stood up and was about to address the crowd. And the crowd shouted out about Herod, You are a god. And look what happens when Herod fails to recognize the one true God. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by words, by worms, and he died. Paul and Barnabas' health, spiritually and perhaps even physically, depended upon their using words to give glory to God alone. Now, what does all this have to do with Hickson Presbyterian Church as you rethink missions? I've got four points of application. I've got three minutes left. You ready? (laughs) First, you must continue Jesus' mission, declaring and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that you are the body bride and fullness of Jesus Christ. When people encounter Hickson Presbyterian Church, they they are supposed to encounter Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and get a foretaste of his coming kingdom. In this light, holistic care for the poor is not kind of icing on the cake for the church. It's not kind of an optional thing to do. Indeed, as many New Testament passages indicate... Care for the poor is one of the central tasks of the church. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Care for the poor is one of the central tasks of the church, but how we do it matters. Good intentions are not enough, which leads to the second point. Our ministry amongst the poor must must always be restorative, seeking to restore the poor to what God has created them to be, people who can work and support themselves with the fruit of that work. Not all poverty alleviation ministries accomplish that. I wish I had more time to unpack this for you, but I have some ugly truth to tell you. One of the hardest places to bring restoration to the poor around the world are places where the American church has been a lot. One of the hardest places to restore the poor to dignity and worth and capacity are places where the American church has been a lot because we've hurled around resources thinking that in doing so, we'll get a chance to tell them that they can trust in Jesus so their soul can go to heaven when they die. And in the process, we undermine dignity, we undermine capacity, we undermine image bearing. It's not the right gospel and it's not the right approach to helping the poor. Third, we must design our ministries in such a way that from top to bottom, there is a narration that it's all about Jesus. 
like Paul and Barnabas, we need to explain that it is Jesus Christ who provides the malaria nets, the wells, the penicillin, and the jobs. It is Jesus Christ who restores people to dignity, worth, and capacity. It is Jesus Christ who reconciles people to God. And it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who is the hope for the poor. And finally, we must repent of our own pagan worldview. You see, it's not just the folks in Lister who are struggling with one. You and I are struggling with one. You see, what Western civilization has taught us is that God, if he exists, is not relevant Monday through Saturday. Most of us are functional deists. We operate as though the world is a machine that operates on its own Monday through Saturday. Think about what you do when you get sick. If you're like me, what you do is you go to 15 doctors, 45 specialists, and at the end of that time, I go, gee, maybe I should pray about this. You see, my God is often not connected to my everyday life. He's the one I worship on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, he's often very detached from the functioning of my life. It's the lie of Western civilization. And that lie makes us proud. You see, if God is not really relevant or necessary Monday through Saturday, then our wealth and our technology come from our own creativity, our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, and it makes Americans very proud. But you see what made Paul and Barnabas so effective was not that they thought they were so great, but it was because they knew they weren't so great. What made Paul and Barnabas so effective was they knew that they weren't the story, but that Jesus Christ was the story. We need to be delivered from the lies of Western civilization. We need humility, and here's the problem. We can't be delivered from our pride on our own. We are helpless to change ourselves. Hence, before we can help the poor, we need to reach out our hands to King Jesus and ask him to heal us. In other words, if we want to truly help a beggar, we first have to become a beggar. In this light, helping a beggar isn't so much about putting a piece of bread in the hands of a beggar, although sometimes there's a role for that. Rather, it's more like this. It's more like grabbing the hand of a beggar and saying, I'm a beggar too, but I found the bread of life. He's fixing me, and he can fix you. Let us feast on him together. Let us pray. King Jesus, we come as beggars. We bring nothing to the table. But you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have power to bring healing as far as the curse is found, and you can heal us. Heal us of our pride. Heal us of our idolatry. Lord Jesus, fix us. It's in your name alone that we pray. Amen.